The forest had always been my sanctuary, a realm of towering trees, whispering leaves, and the soft symphony of nature's orchestra. As a seasoned park ranger, I'd spent years patrolling the remote national park, ensuring the tranquility of its wilderness remained undisturbed. Little did I know, my familiar haven concealed secrets darker than the shadows that danced between the ancient trunks. It started innocently enough. Strange occurrences disrupted the usual calm of the woods, the rustling leaves transformed into ominous whispers, the singing birds into harbingers of doom. Animals, once predictable in their behavior, took on an otherworldly intelligence, their eyes reflecting a knowing gaze that sent shivers down my spine. Determined to protect the park's reputation and its visitors, I embarked on a journey to unravel the mysteries hidden within the heart of the forest. As I delved deeper into the investigation, I stumbled upon symbols etched into the bark of ancient trees, long-forgotten rituals that spoke of a dark history predating the establishment of the National Park. Local legends murmured about a curse, a vengeful spirit awakened by the intrusion of modern civilization. The trees themselves seemed to groan with the weight of their ancient tales, warning of retribution for those who dared to disturb the equilibrium of the sacred grounds. The line between reality and nightmare blurred as I confronted apparitions manifesting the guilt of those who exploited the forest for profit. Shadows took on ghastly forms, morphing into grotesque figures that vanished with every blink. The air thickened with an ominous energy, pressing against me like an invisible force. With each step, I journeyed deeper into the heart of the forest, where the malevolent force awaited, hungering for retribution. The oppressive atmosphere amplified my terror, and the trees themselves seemed to close in, weaving a dense tapestry of ancient secrets that sought to ensnare me. As the climax approached, I found myself standing at the ancient ceremonial site, a place where the forest's consciousness had been violated by humanity's disregard for the sacred. The vengeful spirit materialized before me, a manifestation of the collective rage of the trees, seeking justice for centuries of atrocities. The revelation was spine-chilling the forest's consciousness had become a sentient force, a guardian of its own sanctity. The choice loomed before me succumb to the curse and become a part of the haunting or find a way to appease the angered spirits. In that moment, the weight of humanity's sins pressed upon me, and I realized the true horror of our disregard for the natural world. The forest was not just a collection of trees, it was a living, breathing entity with memories of the past and a voice that demanded retribution. As I made my choice, the forest's energy surged around me, a blend of fury and sorrow. The warning was clear those who trespass on the sanctity of the natural world would inevitably face the unforgiving nature of ancient forces. My journey through the haunted depths of the National Park became a cautionary tale, echoing through the trees a reminder of the consequences of humanity's greed and disrespect for the sacred. It was just a weekend camping trip with my buddy Mark. We were both avid fishermen, so we had set up camp near the river. Mark had caught a nice salmon earlier in the day, and we were planning on cooking it over the fire later that night. As the sun went down, we started to settle in for the night. Mark had fallen asleep pretty quickly, but I was still wide awake, listening to the sounds of the forest. That's when I heard something that made my heart skip a beat. 
It was a slow tapping sound, like rocks being knocked together. I sat up and listened, trying to figure out what it could be. It continued for a few minutes, and then suddenly stopped. I shrugged it off, thinking it was just some small animal scavening for food. But then it happened again, about fifteen minutes later. This time it was different, though. The tapping was faster, and it came from a different direction. I couldn't shake the feeling that something was out there, watching us. I eventually fell asleep, but was awoken a few hours later by a strange noise. It was like a low growl mixed with heavy breathing. I sat up, my heart pounding in my chest, and looked out the window of the camper. That's when I saw it. Standing there in the light of the lantern was a Bigfoot. Its back was to me, and all I could see was its dark, oily, shiny fur. I couldn't believe my eyes. I had heard stories of Bigfoot sightings, but never thought I would see one for myself. I woke Mark up, but by the time he had gotten out of the camper, the creature was gone. We spent the rest of the night listening to the sounds of the forest, but didn't hear or see anything else. The next day, we packed up our camp and headed back home. I couldn't stop thinking about what I had seen. I did some research and found out that there had been other Bigfoot sightings in the area. I even read about how some people believed that it was mating season for Bigfoot during that time of year. I don't know what I saw that night, but I know that it wasn't just my imagination. It's hard to deny the existence of Bigfoot when you've seen one with your own eyes. In my physics gen ed last year, we were split up in groups and working on a lab. A guy at another table let out a yell while extending his arms and fell headfirst off his chair. The very second in between his yell and hitting the floor, a beeping started going off in the room, followed by the words, an emergency is happening in your building. Please evacuate at the nearest exit. And accompanied by flashing lights, the guy is having a seizure on the floor so all we're focusing on is getting him help. A campus police officer comes in and tells us the rest of the science buildings have already evacuated for the fire alarm. Most of us leave to give some space to the people helping the guy. While outside, we're talking amongst ourselves, absolutely baffled by the coinciding events we just witnessed. Did the flashing of the alarm trigger epilepsy? No, because he was already on the floor by the time the lights kicked in. Was there some kind of sensor on him that alerted when his body was experiencing an emergency? No, because it was his first seizure. Just reading it might sound lame, but witnessing it and working out what was happening in real time was just eerie. I still remember that day vividly, even though it's been years since then. That blue bird has been etched into my memory, and I can still see it clearly in my mind's eye. The four of us stood there in the summer sun, staring up at the sky and wondering what kind of bird it could be. We tried to describe it to our parents, but they didn't seem to believe us. They said it was probably just a blue jay or some other kind of bird we weren't familiar with. But we knew better. This was no ordinary bird. Over the next few days, we kept an eye out for the blue bird, but we never saw it again. We even went to our neighbor's house to ask them if they had seen it, but they hadn't. It was like the bird had never existed in the first place, but I knew what I had seen. 
I could still picture it in my mind, with its iridescent blue and green feathers and its long, majestic tail feather. It was unlike anything I had ever seen before or since. As the years went by, I started to wonder if I had imagined the whole thing. Maybe it was just a figment of my childhood imagination. But then I remembered that my brothers and the neighbor's son had seen it too. We couldn't all have imagined the same thing. I've since moved away from that small town in Louisiana, but I still think about that blue bird from time to time. I've searched online for any information about it, but I've never found anything that matches the description of what I saw. Sometimes I wonder if the blue bird was a sign of something, a symbol of something I was meant to see or understand. But maybe it was just a rare and beautiful creature that happened to fly over my house one summer day. Either way, it's a memory that I'll always carry with me. I was on a camping trip with a few family members in Wisconsin. My cousin and I had our bikes with us and were roaming the woods as kids do in the late 90s with no other means of entertainment. It was getting late and near dark, so we decided to head back. What we stumbled upon was a giant at least to kidney fire in the middle of a huge clearing in the woods and a ton of people hanging around. We were young and dumb and wanted to take a closer look. I don't remember what we saw exactly, but we did get chased out of there by some people. Never pedaled so fast in my life. I just googled it and the campground no longer exists. I live in a small farm town called Wiagufka. It's down near central Alabama, USA, but my worst experience was in a bigger, more known farm town called Fayetteville, which is about 30 minutes away. I was about 13 and me, my dad, his at the time girlfriend and her kids were out visiting an old graveyard. And I walked over to the end of the graveyard and was looking at a gravestone I thought stood out. I leaned against the fence while looking at the grave trying to figure out why it stood out. As I was looking at it, I heard a snarl to my right, just over the fence. It was getting dark so I couldn't see that far into the brush. I took a few steps back as the snarling stopped. For whatever reason, I walked back up to the fence. The snarling started again as well as some heavy footsteps towards. I took off and went straight to the others, which luckily were getting ready to leave, so I jumped in the truck with them. As was silent the whole way home, I didn't go back to Fayetteville again for a few years, not if I could help it. My grandfather always had a knack for telling stories that made the hairs on the back of my neck stand up. One particular tale he shared with me has always stuck in my mind. It took place many years ago when he was a young man in India, driving his truck between rural villages late at night. The sky was pitch black, and the only source of light came from the truck's headlights as they cut through the darkness. There was nobody around, and the only sound was the rumbling of the truck's engine. As he continued his journey, he reached a particularly wobbly stretch of road, forcing him to slow down. As he inched his way forward, something caught his eye. A small shadow darted across the headlights, running at a seemingly inhuman speed. Upon closer inspection, he realized that it was a baby, or at least it appeared to be. Shocked and confused, he decided to stop the truck and investigate. 
My grandfather got out of his truck and began to chase after the baby, desperate to find out what was going on. He called out, his voice echoing through the darkness, but there was no response. The baby had seemingly vanished into the surrounding forest. He searched for what felt like hours, but ultimately, he could not find any trace of the child. Defeated and bewildered, he returned to his truck and continued his journey, unable to shake the eerie encounter from his thoughts. Over the years, my grandfather has recounted this story many times, and each time it sends shivers down my spine. Was it truly a baby that he saw that night, or was it something else entirely? We may never know the truth, but the mystery of that haunting experience will continue to linger in our imaginations. When I was 14 or so, I spent a weekend with a friend at his cabin at Heart Lake, Canada, a place which I later learned is tied to the First Nations people that live there. On the second night, we decided to stay in a small fishing shack a few hundred feet away from the actual lake house, which was little more than a shed with two bunk beds on opposite sides. I slept on the top bunk on one side, he on the bottom bunk on the other. I remember very vividly waking up because of the warmth. It was late autumn, and we'd had to bundled up to keep from freezing. But now, at about 3 a.m., the cabin was very comfortable, and the light was casting shadows on the wall beside me. In my tired, half-awake state, I could see the shadows were reflections of animals outside. There were a few squirrels, a couple birds pecking at the ground, and mostly rabbits about two or three bunny shadows were always reflected on the wall just a foot from my gaze, shadows casually nibbling at the ground and seeming extremely unconcerned in general. It was serene. To this day I remember how peaceful it was, how unrushed I felt to rouse myself fully awake. I don't remember if I actually heard birds chirping, or if I only imagined it because they were so lifelike. As I began to wake up further and further, however, it dawned on me the cabin didn't have a light inside of it. Nor was there a window. I pulled myself up slowly, confused but too peaceful to be truly startled, and realized I couldn't determine the source of the light. I woke up my friend who was immediately scared by the fact that we could see each other clearly despite no visible source of illumination, and I called him to take a look at the still-moving shadows on the wall next to me. He did, screamed, and fled from the cabin immediately and started running back towards the lake house. I stayed behind to watch the figures a little while longer, partially because I was surprised that they hadn't also panicked and fled at his noise, and partially because I felt like when I left, the zen-like feeling of tranquility would go as well. Eventually, I did follow him back up to the lake house, where his religious father gave us a furious lecture about making up stories. I spoke to that same friend in passing a decade later, and he told me he still remembered the night vividly. He cited the experience as the main reason he turned to Wiccanism later in life. We wrote down every detail we could remember and sent them to each other simultaneously over a chat program, and they matched up perfectly, except for the fact that he also stated that he distinctly remembers feeling protected. I sometimes wish there was more to the story, but every single word of the above is 100% true. My aunt in Mexico is a brujo, which she is someone that is wealthy, but acts dirt poor, and no one messes with her. 
One year I decided to go down to my grandmother's hometown and learn more about where I'm from. My aunt was one of the many people that came to greet me. I gave everyone kisses and hugs and introduced myself. When I got to my aunt she grabbed my hand and instantly I felt drained. I thought nothing of it since I just got off a three hour flight. I returned to my uncle's house to rest before going to meet more of my family members. As I was laying down, my head started to throb harder and harder. One of the worst headaches I have ever had. I took some Tylenol, but that didn't seem to help. I still went to visit family even though my head felt like a hammer was hitting it. I never believed in Brugeria, I just knew about it. Over the course of my stay, I kept getting sicker and sicker. Some days I couldn't walk, others I'd throw up. I just thought it was because I was in a different country and my body isn't used to it. One of my other uncles came to see me and I told him about it. He told me to come over to his house that afternoon and that he can make my sickness go away. I didn't really believe him because my uncle was a medicine man and I thought what he was talking about was fake. Boy was I wrong. I went to his house and he made me choose an egg. He then performed this ritual on me where you rub the egg around your body to cleanse it. When he cracked open the egg, it was completely black. He said that someone put a hex out on me. He knew instantly who it was. Note, my uncle and my aunt that's a witch do not get along after that. He walked me back to where I was staying because he didn't want her touching or talking to me. Once I was inside, I heard them screaming at each other. That night, Guadalajara had one of the worst floodsthunder lightning storms. I prayed and prayed all night that God would protect me from my aunt. I had sleep paralysis, but it wasn't a negative, scared feeling, more like a caring and holding feeling. The next morning I awoke with no headache, sickness, and ready to take on the day. It was a scary experience and honestly don't wish it on my worst enemy. I had just begun my shift at the police station when a young woman walked in, looking scared and frantic. She said someone had been stalking her in her new apartment and she needed our help. At first we thought it was a simple case, but as she told her story, it became clear that there was something more sinister going on. The woman, who will call Emily, had moved into her apartment just two weeks prior. She had found the place online and despite the unusually low rent for the area, the pictures looked great. The broker seemed legitimate, so she decided to visit the building. It was after this phone call with the broker that she started receiving late-night blank calls, which only escalated her fear. When she visited the building, everything seemed fine, but there was a group of people outside the apartment that made her uneasy. Despite this, she decided to move in a month later. The moving crew commented on the apartment's cold and uneasy atmosphere, but Emily brushed it off as moving day nerves. But strange things started happening almost immediately. She saw shadows moving around her apartment and felt an unnatural darkness lingering in the hallway. She received a mysterious package addressed to her, and when she looked up at her balcony from outside, she felt like someone was watching her. When she went inside her apartment, the door was ajar but nobody was inside. One night, she ordered food delivery, and a man she didn't recognize came to her door. He 
He wouldn't respond when she asked if he was the delivery person and continued to pound on her door. Eventually, he left, and the actual delivery person arrived. She paid him in cash, even though he claimed that she had already paid online. The strange occurrences continued. Her plants on the balcony were smashed, the lights flickered, and someone constantly knocked on her door. After two weeks, Emily came to us for help. We checked the CCTV footage around her apartment building, and while we saw her looking out of her door multiple times, we didn't see any suspicious individuals. The delivery person's account didn't match Emily's story either. We decided to visit her apartment ourselves. As we entered the apartment, we couldn't deny the cold and eerie feeling inside. Emily mentioned that there was an inexplicable draft, but we couldn't find the source. The neighbors told us about a disturbing history of the apartment, with multiple women moving in, only to disappear shortly after. The previous tenant, a woman in her 40s, had disappeared months ago. When we showed the delivery person her photo, he identified her as the woman who had taken the food that night. But she couldn't have been there. An elderly neighbor shared a theory about the apartment sending its residents to a different dimension, but we couldn't take her seriously. All we knew was that something strange was happening in that apartment. We advised Emily to call us if anything else happened, but we didn't hear from her for another two weeks. When we went to check on her, the apartment was locked, and Emily was gone. The unnerving mystery of the apartment continued, leaving us with no answers, only more questions, and an unsettling feeling that would haunt us for the rest of our careers. Despite the lack of concrete evidence, we couldn't shake the feeling that something was terribly wrong with that apartment. We decided to dig deeper into its history, searching for any clues that could explain the strange events and the disappearances of its tenants. We interviewed former residents and neighbors, many of whom shared similar eerie stories. We discovered that the building's landlord had changed hands numerous times, and each one seemed eager to sell the property quickly. The more we investigated, the more it seemed that everyone involved with the apartment wanted to distance themselves from it. As we delved into the building's history, we learned that it was once a hospital, and the room that was now Emily's apartment had been the morgue. This revelation sent a chill down our spines. Could this explain the cold and uneasy presence felt in the apartment? Our investigation led us to a local historian who specialized in paranormal events. He suggested that the apartment might be a liminal space, a place where the boundaries between dimensions are thin, allowing for strange occurrences and possibly the disappearances of its residents. As improbable as it seemed, the evidence was mounting. We approached our superiors with our findings, but they were skeptical. They believed that the tenants had simply left without notice, and the strange stories were just coincidences fueled by an overactive imagination but we couldn't let it go. The disappearances of Emily and the other women weighed heavily on our minds. We decided to set up a stakeout in the apartment, hoping to catch a glimpse of the elusive stalker, or at the very least, find a logical explanation for the strange events. We moved into the apartment, setting up cameras and recording devices throughout the space. The first few nights were uneventful, but on the fourth night, something changed. The air in the apartment grew colder, and the darkness seemed to come alive, 
wrapping itself around us like a suffocating blanket. The walls began to vibrate, and we heard an unearthly scream that shook us to our core. In that moment, we knew we were dealing with something beyond our understanding. We abandoned the stakeout, fleeing the apartment in terror. We reported our experience to our superiors, but they dismissed it as a stress-induced hallucination. Frustrated and scared, we decided to take matters into our own hands. We contacted a renowned paranormal investigator and asked for their help. With their assistance, we performed a cleansing ritual in the apartment, hoping to rid it of the malevolent energy that haunted it. To our surprise, the ritual seemed to work. The apartment's atmosphere changed, and the mysterious occurrences ceased. However, we never found Emily or the other missing women. Their disappearances remained an unsolved mystery that would haunt us for years to come. In the end, we couldn't prove that the apartment was a gateway to another dimension, or that it was haunted by the spirits of the dead. But we knew that something inexplicable and terrifying had happened there, and we would never forget the chilling experiences we had within those cold, dark walls. Growing up, I was always intrigued by the strange and mysterious stories my father would share from his business trips. He often stayed in rundown inns with shared rooms where he met people from all walks of life. One of his stories still sends a shiver down my spine whenever I recall it. During one of his trips, my father was staying in a ramshackle inn when a couple arrived late in the evening, asking for directions to a nearby town. The innkeeper showed them the way but strongly advised against traveling at night, especially in the fog. Despite the couple's urgency, the innkeeper and his elderly wife insisted that they stay, warning them about the dangers of the road at night. Curious about their concerns, my father asked the couple why they were so nervous. He had walked through foggy nights before and never encountered any trouble. The couple, their faces pale and their voices hushed, shared their fears about a strange creature that had been seen in the area during the cold seasons for several years. They described the creature as a monster that lurked in the darkest forests, emerging only at night under the cover of the fog. People had spotted the creature walking along the roads, scaring the local residents. They said it resembled an ogre from ancient tales much larger and stronger than any man. The shepherds who lived in the open fields had heard its terrifying roars in the night, but their dogs wouldn't dare bark until daybreak. When morning came, they would find the creature's massive footprints on the ground. Once, a group of villagers ventured into the forest to hunt the creature down, but the dense woods and darkness deterred them from staying overnight, fearing that they would never return. The creature was never seen during the warmer months, but in the cold and foggy nights, it was better to stay indoors. As my father recounted this story to me, the hair on the back of my neck would stand on end, and I couldn't help but shudder at the thought of such a terrifying creature lurking in the shadows. Even though I never saw the creature myself, I couldn't shake off the feeling of unease that settled in whenever I was out on a cold, foggy night. Years later, I still find myself glancing over my shoulder, half expecting to catch a glimpse of the ogre-like monster that haunted my father's stories. Whether it was real or simply the product of the villagers' vivid imaginations, the legend of the fog creature will forever be etched in my memory, 
a chilling reminder of the unknown that may lurk just beyond our sight. Twenty, twenty-five years ago, I spent a lot of time at a friend's house throughout the summer. As kids, we naturally played outside often. His house was out of town, down a private road with ten, fifteen houses on it. Over a few years' time, while playing outside, I would see a Native American. I paint, feathers, loincloth, the whole ball of wax. We would lock eyes, then he would disappear. It happened several times, and when I would ask my twin brother or friend if they saw him, nothing, they never did. I let it go and just left it to my imagination. Fifteen years later, I now work for my father in his small business. I get a call to do an estimate for a neighbor that lived next to my friend's house. Friend had moved away and the house was under new owners. Looked over the house, pretty normal estimate. Started to partake in small talk with the elderly couple, and I explained to her we spent summer time next door as kids growing up. She asks me if I ever have seen the Indian man, my jaw dropped. Was she messing with me? Was someone playing a prank? She went on to explain that there had been a tribe that had lived along these river banks, and that his spirit had stayed behind. I still don't know what to believe, but it was eye-opening. As an investigator of paranormal phenomena, I had always been interested in the legends and folklore of Native American tribes. So when I heard about strange occurrences happening in the Grand Teton National Park, I knew I had to investigate. On April 25th, I set out on a hike along a tributary of the park, about 2200 feet above sea level. I was on the lookout for signs of skinwalker activity, a legend that has been passed down for generations by the Native American tribes in the area. As I made my way deeper into the woods, I noticed something strange. The tops of several fir trees had been twisted off and were hanging about eight and a half feet up. This was not something that could have been done by natural means, and it immediately caught my attention. I followed the trail further up, and to my surprise, I found even more trees with twisted tops. It was as if something had gone through the woods, systematically breaking the trees as it went. I couldn't help but feel a sense of unease as I continued my hike. It was as if something was watching me, following my every move. I couldn't shake the feeling that I was being watched, and it sent shivers down my spine. As I made my way back down the trail, I couldn't help but wonder what could have caused such a bizarre phenomenon. Was it the work of a skinwalker, as I had suspected? Or was it something else entirely, something far more sinister? I couldn't be sure, but one thing was certain I would need to investigate further. The legends and folklore of the Native American tribes had always intrigued me, and now more than ever, I was determined to uncover the truth behind these strange occurrences. In the 80s, I was with two friends hiking in the Okfinoki Forest in Florida, basically a huge swamp with alligators, banana spiders, raccoons and miles of black mud and creeks and trees. The biggest spider webs I've ever seen everywhere with these huge yellow spiders nearly walked into one. We were all tripping on acid when we found a long black wooden platform built in the middle of nowhere. It had weird symbols painted in white all over it. 
We stood on it looking around when about fifty raccoons silently walked out of the woods towards us, their little hands digging in the mud for food. They were not afraid of us, it was like that scene in Young Guns when they take mescaline and the Indians let them pass because they were in the spirit world. The raccoons surrounded up and passed by and under the platform. When they were gone we were like, did you see that? I walked to the end of the platform and looked down. The symbols came together in perspective like an optical illusion to form the head of Baphomet. We decided to leave and go to the beach instead of waiting around to get sacrificed to the goat god. The first encounter happened back when I was in 8th or ninth grade, can't remember exactly. I was friends with a bunch of guys and girls who were a year ahead of me, all of which I had met through my best friend Tom. Well, our little circle of friends went out for a night of bowling. The group consisted of myself, Tom, Jeremy, Beth, and Beth's friend Ashley. Beth had just broken up with her boyfriend, Corey. Corey was a real piece of work. Extremely arrogant, pushy, possessive, and controlling. This was only my second time meeting Beth and Ashley, and I was unaware of the breakup, or even of Corey's existence. We had our fun bowling and wandered out to the picnic tables surrounding the bowling alley and adjacent go-kart track, by which time it's getting rather late. All of the sudden Beth and Ashley start getting texts and phone calls from their friends and Beth becomes visibly shaken. The two of them promptly and with little explanation run off to another section of the property. Tom, Jeremy, and I are confused as hell. We get clued in by texts that Corey has gone full-on, hardcore stalker mode and basically interrogated a bunch of his and Beth's mutual friends in order to figure out where she was. And he was on his way here now. No sooner than we had figured that out when we see him and his posse or entourage stroll into the picnic area. They spot the three of us chilling at our table and Corey apparently tells his guys to stay where they are before walking very pointedly towards us. Completely unannounced, he leans over onto our table, putting his face level with and uncomfortably close to ours. So where's Beth? Now I had never met the guy, but he was already giving me really bad vibes. Both Jeremy and Tom already despised him from previous encounters with the guy, as such, we had all made the unspoken agreement to cover for Beth. We don't know, Jeremy and Tom replied, just shrugging and trying to brush the question off with their best poker faces. Corey just stares us each down in turn, unblinking, clearly trying to intimidate us. We stare right back. Oh yeah, he asks. Well, I know she's here. And that's when he said the words I'll never forget, the same statement that made every stalker alert and warning bell go off in my head simultaneously. She hasn't been answering my calls, but it's okay because now I've got a new truck, so that means when she doesn't answer my calls, I can come find her. His voice was intense. He was completely, 100% serious and stared me dead in the eye as he said it. As soon as he made that little proclamation, the atmosphere at the table went from tense to about one step short of a full-scale brawl. My legs were under the table, so I slowly edged them out to the side and clenched my fists, ready to go to blows with this creeper if I had to. There was a little more small talk with threatening undertones from both sides that I don't remember much of, before Corey finally relented. 
He went back to regroup with his posse. He stuck around, though, and it started to seem like he might be working up the courage to start something. However, we made it clear that we wouldn't be backing down and Jeremy started spreading the word, very obviously, that I was armed I wasn't based on a joking comment I'd made earlier in the night. It seemed to do the trick. Luckily, Beth emerged from hiding and finally talked Corey down. He promptly went from threatening to sort of creepy friendly. Tried to show off his new truck to us and make small talk. Beth and Ashley peeled out of there pretty quick like understandably afterward. The night proceeded without incident. Fast forward about four years. Corey and Beth had more drama as time went by, with him sending threatening and harassing texts, spreading lies to damage her reputation, etc. At one point they actually got back together Tom, and I made our disapproval abundantly clear to Beth. But that didn't last long before the two broke up again. One day, Tom and I are at Jeremy's house, where he and his girlfriend Tara are in contact with Beth, who's working her shift at a large, local sporting goods store. Tara, after some texts and a phone call, puts her phone down and has this really concerned look. We ask her what's up, and she tells us all that Corey is at Beth's workplace. At first he just kinda wandered around the aisles, staring at her. But then he actually took one of the hunting knives on stock out of its case and began brandishing toying with it as he stared at her, roaming around the store as he did so. Tom heard this and immediately began to march downstairs to his truck, with me following right behind him. He was absolutely pissed. Keep in mind that Tom's a pretty big guy, very athletic with a potentially nasty temper. He had done some Emma training in the past. To top it all off, he's an active duty infantryman and army ranger. He was on leave from training when this was Cluster F was going down. Now consider the fact that he had an R-15 with ammunition in his truck. Not a good situation for anyone involved, least of all the stalker. Of course I was really pumped up too, but at the same time I didn't want to see my friend go off half-cocked and end up in jail or worse. Jeremy and Tara talked us both down and I was about to call the police when Beth contacted us, saying she was all clear. She had talked to her manager about the situation and Corey had ended up finally leaving. While the manager walked Beth to her car in the parking lot, the stalker's truck was out there, waiting for her. I talked with Beth extensively after the incident, advising her that I had connections with the police department and all of the local judges, which is true. She already had plenty of grounds on which to file for a protective order, if not stalking harassment charges. Alas, she decided to let the matter drop and luckily the guy hasn't shown his face again. Still, I wouldn't be surprised if he tries something else in the future. Four years ago, we bought an old house, and from the get-go it freaked me out. It's a one-time owner, but over 70 years old. A little old lady ran a day care out of it until she got to old. We bought and fixed it up as our first house. One. While remodeling, the radio would change station by itself. I would have it on some rock and thought the first couple times it was my dad just changing the station. Then one day, while working in the kitchen where the radio was, it changed twice both from my station of rock to some straight-up gangster stuff. Two. 
One night I was doing some work late and called my dad for a question about some electrical stuff. While my cell phone was trying to ring it turned white noise and I heard the words in an old lady's voice. Get out! I hung up and told my house off. I mean I really laid into it. Once I calmed down and realized I was alone I left. 3. Cabinets in my house will be open when I walk through to this day. 4. The series of pictures we took before the remodel had snow in only one room. Every picture in that room not the rest of the house. 5. Woke up one night to go pee walked out in the hall to the bathroom and threw my hands up in the air and yelled whoa. As a teacher this is a natural reaction right before I bump a child in the hall at school, but there was no body in the hall. Just a shadow I saw for a second that seemed to be a young kid in the hall at my house. 6. Woke up one night with my eyes closed and had that feeling like I was being watched. I peeked and saw a little lady figure standing in the room. Closed my eyes real quick, then found the courage to look again and saw that it had moved to my wife's side of the bed. Got up and turned the light on and it had vanished. 7. Went to the bathroom, closed the door. Was doing some calculus and the door opened. I leaned to close it and it opened again. I then left it open if a ghost wants to see and smell that I will let it. 8. A light in the closet in what used to be the little old lady's room will be randomly on. 9. Just now as I was looking at another thread the baby's rocker arm moved to the floor slowly. The rocker has an arm that folds over and locks into place. The arm was at a 90 degree after we got him out of it about 4 hours ago. Now it's all the way down. Like I said I don't believe in all this stuff. It's all just weird never threatening or mean. What do you guys think?